Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. The Royal College of General Practitioners have proposed a five-point action plan for general practice, saying that as we move beyond the emergency pandemic period, general practice is now at breaking point. They call for 6,000 more GPs, 26,000 more other members of staff, less bureaucracy, better infrastructure, and more say in integrated care systems. But even if all of this happened, would it be enough to save general practice and improve care? Today, we take a look at the RCGP's action plan and go back to first principles with the help of Ronnie Lil Andrum to see if a little bit of philosophy might make us think differently about our patients and the future of general practice. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and a clinical editor for the BMJ. And joining me, as usual, uh, is uh, Navjoy. Hi, Navjoy. Hi, I'm Navjoy Larder, a clinical editor at the BMJ and a locum GP in London. And Jenny, hi. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. So today we're going to talk about, uh, yeah, general practice at breaking point, which is of what we've been talking about for the last year or so isn't it um but it's good to see the rcgp um well yeah aiming to do something about it um have you been following this i review yes yeah i mean i saw that they've um issued this statement and plan which it's good to hear the rcgp kind of stepping up and um and creating this plan i'm sort of intrigued by uh, how how it will actually happen and there's a lot of kind of I think mm. the, the year that they've given is to do these things by 2024 and obviously there's a lot of time until then so yeah um, yeah so I guess the devil as always is in the detail with these things yeah there's a link on the website to to write to your MP about it so maybe it's a bit of okay so that's something <laughs> we can do now that's something we can oh, all do great. right now so oh perfect switch this off good I'm glad okay. we're fine <laughs> Before we dig um, any deeper, though, can can you explain to me kind of what the relationship is between the RCGP and the government? Like, what kind of power do they have? How do they have any tools to hold people accountable for these targets? Yeah. And and kind of, yeah, like what influence can they hope to have? Yeah. Um, after, do you want to go to that one? <laughs> well, do you want I mean, the official version or the, uh, the, the, the very brief? <laughs> I, I think that, that my understanding is they have about as much power as a kind of lobby group, basically. Mm. Um, and really what, I mean, I think that would be one of the criticisms actually of this plan is what what I think general practice in the UK really needs right now is for the RCGP and our union the bma to get in a room with uh together and with politicians to actually deliver some of this so the mm. there isn't a, a sort of formal mechanism as far as i know for for any of this to be delivered just by the rcgp um mm. alone yeah yeah um well shall i give you a few numbers from their uh reports as obviously they they include you know, why we need this. Uh, so they say that consultation rates are 11% higher in Ju- June 2021 than they were in June 20, 2019. The number of full-time equivalent GPs fell by 4.5% between 2019 and 
2015 and 2021. Um, and six in 10 GPs say their mental health has deteriorated in the last year. Mm. Uh, and most of those um, say they expect things to get worse. Mm. So uh, it does paint a pretty pretty bad, bleak picture. But I have to say, that does feel about right to me. Mm. Um, is this? I mean, I was wondering, Jenny, because of course... You know, you're in New Zealand. You trained in in uh, America or the US. Um, is this something with you see elsewhere? You know, is this? Do you think general practice across the globe is in crisis, or is this a particular problem that we're we're grappling with in the UK? Yeah, I think it's an important question, um, and I appreciate the explanation of the relationship between the RCGP and the government. And I also don't pretend to be an expert on the NHS. Um, I have not an insider understanding of it necessarily. Hmm. Um, But, you know, the description that you gave of RCGP is analogous to the American Academy of Family Physicians and other kind of um, medical Hmm. societies um, and kind of professional bodies in the United States and definitely analogous to the Royal New Zealand College of General Practice. Um, And I, I, I have to say that Um, This is, I think, a problem in almost every country and probably um, just as bad in high income countries as it is in low and middle income countries. Certainly, um, the United States has been dealing with a primary care family medicine doctor shortage for decades that we've not been able to find successful policy initiatives and incentives to solve. Um, the Royal College, uh, the Royal New Zealand College of General Practice gave a briefing to the health minister in 2021 where one they cited as one of their top four kind of priorities and action areas, a shortage of GPs, including shocking statistics about the number of GPs who are planning to retire in the next five years. Um, 49%... Of GPs in New Zealand are planning on retiring in the next 10 years and 27% intend to retire in the next five years. So we're also kind of staring down the barrel at this GP shortage Mm. that's likely to continue getting significantly worse. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's a similar, well, almost the same problems, um, I'm sure. I mean, should we look at some of the solutions that the RCGP are, are suggesting, um, which I sort of summarised in the intro there, but a ramping up of efforts to deliver the 2019 Conservative Manifesto target of 6,000 more full-time equivalent GPs in the next three years, um, a system-wide programme to eradicate bureaucratic burdens and unnecessary workload by 2024, allowing more GPs to, to care for their patients, Uh, Improving recruitment and integration of at least 26,000 other members of staff into the GP workforce. Uh, uh, Improving uh, general practice infrastructure uh, to allow GPs to deliver uh, better and safer care. So that's modern buildings and reliable technology. Um, And GPs have a strong voice in integrated care systems um, in order to eliminate the waste associated with fragmented services. they say it within their plan they've got sort of oven ready as <laughs> a pr- proposals of how to do that but um you know it takes three or three at least three years to train a gp so it's quite hard to think how you would do that yeah on top of five years of medical school and two years of foundation training uh yeah. 
it, yeah, I don't understand that either. Yeah. And presumably if other countries are also facing a GP shortage, then, mm. you know, recruiting people in from other countries, is it does not seem like a fair solution either. Yes. No, yeah. and that hasn't been a solution in New Zealand either. I'm having personally just gone through the process of seeking medical registration here um, and being familiar with a number of um, people from different countries seeking clinical registration in New Zealand. It's a very slow process. It's certainly not helping to support the primary care pipeline here. Mm. I am curious what you think, though, about this idea of developing a new GP retention strategy. Um, What I notice here in this action plan is this gaping absence of any kind of talk of money. Um, And certainly financial incentives have to be a part of it. Um, In the U.S., one strategy that has been used, and admittedly, I don't know the statistics on its success rate, but one strategy has been to alleviate student loan debt by offering um, people the opportunity to work in rural areas or areas where they're particularly short of primary care providers, and that being a pathway again for that student debt relief. Um, And that has been, you know, I think... Again, I don't know the statistics on its success, but it has certainly driven people to help fill those um, gaps. Yeah, yeah. So they say in the the document here, they want to expand access to the the GP retention scheme so that all GPs can be supported to remain in the workforce and have access to uh, high quality professional development opportunities through local training hubs. So I suppose... It does feel like an area that sometimes does get a bit neglected, particularly if you're a salaried GP and, you know, the pressure is always on the work, work, work. And maybe if we had more time built into for professional development, that might help. Um, or, yeah, like you say, financial support to, st- to just stay in the job. Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, money always helps, doesn't it? Well, what do you think? I mean, would would money would money alleviate some of the discontents of your practice? Well, that's that's kind of where we're going to get to on on this episode because we, I guess, after reading this, I mean, I think all this is would be very helpful and maybe is all necessary to in, in one way or another. Um, things like reducing bureaucracy and um, you know having IT systems at work. You know, I think those are really annoying parts of the job that if they were better would make going to work a bit easier and less stressful and less demoralising. But um, yeah, I just did did feel a bit at the end of this, well, is that enough? Is there something more? Are we, mm. are we even sort of thinking about this in, in the right way? Particularly if, as you say, Jenny, this isn't just a UK problem, purely a lack mm. of resource. And you know, would all the resource in the world still be enough? Um, I suppose it would be a less um, stressful job if you had a lot more time, but but maybe we just need to think about things a bit differently. I, I think you're right, Tom, what you're alluding to is that there is a kind of bigger picture that this doesn't really touch on. And certainly those themes that we keep returning to in our conversations about that, I think we kind of get a bit misty eyed when we talk a little bit about you know our relationship with our patients and continuity and having the time and space and and people aren't just you know robots we're we're all you know allowing for those sort of human factors to to come into it a bit more and I mean I, I I 
I don't know if I'm getting increasingly cynical as time goes on, but it it seems to me we're moving further away from that rather than towards that. Um, and certainly, you know, another thing to take into account is the sort of changes in society that happen as well. And as we've talked about before on this podcast, it just seems like as you know, the, as consumers in this society as well, our sort of appetite for things is different. You know, we want things accessible and quickly. And that all again is kind of moving away from this sort of dreamy idea that we have of, of general practice of old. So, yeah, so I think that the, the, the plan is kind of touching on important things that, that would help in the long term. But I think, yeah, there is a there is a bigger picture and bigger context. You know, one of the points here that resonated with me was the call for additional roles and integrating at least 26,000 other members of staff. And they gave the example of clinical pharmacists in general practice. And it made me wonder if this, um, if what they have in mind are things like diabetes educators and people who could come in and um, do kind of behavioral counseling, um, you know, motivational interviewing, these kind of adjunctive roles that could kind of acutely take some of that pressure off GPs so they can kind of talk about the problem and figure out kind of what resources to direct people to, but then don't spend the actual time doing some of that counseling. And on the one hand, that would be so welcome and so helpful. Um, but on the other hand, there are potential losses to the therapeutic relationship by kind of taking away some of that time and some of that interaction. Um, and, you know, Navdroid, I think you're right. Um, there are, there, there does seem to be something deeper here about, you know, what general practice really is in those underlying patient relationships. So all of this is sort of edging us gradually and slowly to, towards our first interview uh, because it really is about thinking what what is the role of the GP and what what are we going to do with that time in the consultation. So I wanted to speak to Rani. Um, uh, I actually came across her via one of our old podcast friends, uh, Iona Heath, who suggested looking into her work. And that's coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. Let's go back to the interview with Rani about guidelines. 
Okay, so my name is Rani Lil Anjem, and I'm a researcher, a philosopher at Norwegian University of Life Sciences. And um, I have been working in philosophy of science and philosophy of medicine for the last 10 years or more. <laughs> and I've been really interested in the relationship between um, how we understand concepts such as causation, probability, complexity and risk and how we um, go about to research them uh, in medicine, for instance, but also in science in general. And, uh, and of course, in the Cause Health project, we work on how this affects uh, clinical practice. Yeah. Um, so yeah. let me give you an example of where I think this, well, an everyday example for, for, for a GP, which would um, be useful to get your thoughts on the the kind of philosophical basis for 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 this. Um, so, if I have a patient who I have a ten or fifteen minute appointment slot, uh, but the patient wants to come in and, and talk about their chronic pain, uh, and this might be somebody who is on multiple medications, has multiple comorbidities, um, uh, but I only have a very limited time to 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 help this person. Um, what we tend to do is first think about well, what's in the nice guidelines? How to, how do I apply the guidelines to this patient and offer them um, those? And I feel like that is something I can probably achieve within a, a short space of time. Um, but it does leave me sometimes feeling that that isn't really the the, the thing that's just going to help them the most, and uh, maybe spending more time understanding their their story or understanding that that person as an individual might be more useful than applying the guideline. Is that is that the kind of tension and that 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 we that you're talking about in 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 your work? And can you kind of help to unpick and explain some of that that to to me? Yeah, I think the clinical guidelines is really showing what we refer to as the clinical squeeze between the population-based evidence and the relevant evidence that you need to get from your patient, because what is the best way to understand the symptoms that the patient is having and what is the best way to treat or go forward with uh, with that patient? Um, from the clinical guidelines, you would base that uh, recommendation on what happens to other people, not your patient. But as a clinician, you need to think about your patient and whether they have some relevant differences, for instance, from... Uh, the population that was studied. So the, the evidence that you're asked to use in the individual case might not actually apply <laughs> to that individual. How do you know? Um, how are you supposed to figure that out as a, uh, as a clinician where you sat? And especially, as you say, with 10 to 15 minutes. So you might have some idea and some background in your training Um that would, uh, if you had more time with the patient, would tell you that this re this recommendation wouldn't be a good one for your patient. But you wouldn't necessarily have the time to uh, figure out every causally relevant uh, piece of information from that patient. So you, you see, this is how um, the statistically generated type of evidence gives you numbers needed to treat. So if we do this 
what it says in the guidelines recommendation for this group of patients, it's going to work for at least 30% of them. And that's a good number. Uh, so just do this to your patient. And if that doesn't work, we go to the next uh, recommendation on the list. And, and you see, instead of thinking, okay, for whom would this work and when and under which conditions um, and would this work for your patient, you just do what works for most. And if you go to ethics, you would call that rule utilitarianism. You follow the rule that benefits the most. And of course, you know that it's not going to maximize benefit for your patient necessarily, but on the group level and public health perspective, it's going to make more people better. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if I understand that um, for a certain medication, the patient has tried before or may have a, a reason why that might, may not work, then of course, don't don't go for the, the first recommendation. Uh, look, look for the others or look for the ones that suits that, that individual better, even if it's not as highly recommended by the guideline. You see, the problem with the guidelines is that you are allowed to uh, ignore them if you have extremely good reasons to do so. But then it's the burden to <laughs> explain why you didn't follow the guideline. If anything goes wrong, you have to defend your actions. If you know nothing, if you have very little time to figure something out, at least you have done the right thing. You have followed the guidelines. And yeah, I mean, if you want to really maximize utility in the single case, you wouldn't go for the rule utilitarianism. You would go for the uh, the individual, the act utilitarianism. Then in each situation, you would try to uh, maximize the benefit. But the whole evidence-based medicine is, you see, it's based on this public health perspective. It, it looks at group level, the benefits on group level. But as a clinician, you have to think on the individual think, yeah. level. And that's why we say it's clinical squeeze. So um, clinical squeeze, we can add that to our deep breath in the glossary if we if we had one. I think the thing that struck me most from that about about guidelines is you can, I and mean, sometimes we do, I do know nothing, but as long as I can follow the guideline, then you're, you are sort of safe, aren't you? And it, um, even if you haven't sort of got there in terms of understanding the specific kind of situation for that individual, and that, that I guess that's that's not a new thing that you know, I think we, we, we sort of know that, don't we? But uh, I wonder how much of a problem that creates in terms of not actually doing the best by our patients. Yeah, but I mean, they are, they, that's why they're there, aren't they? They're there to synthesize all that evidence and to guide an individual clinician for, you know, that patient. Um, but I mean, you're right, there are all these concerns about guidelines as well. And I mean, this just gets at the complexity that GPs are dealing with in their consultations, where something that, you know, might be quite straightforward. So, you know, it, it, there might be a very straightforward guideline and there might your patient might fit the profile of who that guideline applies to. And yet still there's this additional consideration of like, 
you know, how how well does this kind of population level thing match my individual patient? Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, in, in some ways, this question is kind of why GPs exist, right? Like, if all of human health and medicine were as simple as following a guideline, then patients could diagnose themselves and then like click themselves in for whatever treatment or therapy that they need. But actually, rarely do people (laughs) align perfectly with the kind of um, population upon which these guidelines are based. and, And it's our job to kind of say, well, how well do you match that? What's my clinical experience telling me? What what are you emphasizing as your key concerns or challenges here? And what do we need to pay the most attention to? And um, I, su- I suppose I would just add to that, that I appreciated her saying that if, if and when we think a patient kind of falls outside the purview of a guideline, then we have this kind of documentation burden to explain why we didn't follow it. But in some ways, that's also kind of, I don't know, keeping us accountable. Like we, it, it, it forces us to kind of justify our thinking. Hmm. Do you think you could document, uh, you know, terminate appointment, you know, by the nine and a half minutes? I couldn't, yeah, I, I wasn't in a position to tailor the, the advice, therefore, you know, recommended nice guideline or, so I don't mean to just, you know, because that's kind of... Didn't have enough time to fully kind of what, investigate what the symptom. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I had decision fatigue. And so, yeah. yeah, I'm obviously like being, being um, a bit flip, very flippant there, but there, it's these sort of things we don't really um, appreciate or... You know, the, the un- maybe unintended consequences of, of the way we we practice. I can't imagine documenting those things, like, um, but may- maybe I should be. <laughs> so Rani, there, who I spoke to, is uh, uh, one of a, a group of um, multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary group of um, clinicians and philosophers and, and patients who have put together this book um, called Cause Health, or I think the book might not be exactly that that title, but uh, the project is Cause Health. You can Google it. It's, it's it's really interesting. It really does challenge the way you think about healthcare and how we practice. And and very much, I, I know I'll get this wrong, so apologies, Ronnie, when when you're listening back to this. But very much looking at the individual and how you can actually look at tracking a cause of of somebody's symptoms or health problem in the individual. Um, uh, sort of in contrast to um, looking at the sort of wi- more widely at the, the population-based approaches to, to working these things out. Um, we didn't obviously have time to kind of cover all of what, what the, this philosophy and all this is about in, in our interview, but so we're just going to sort of dip our toes in the water and, and find out about one aspect of this and one aspect of their work, which is about probability. And... Uh, Again, fascinatingly, I'd never really thought about this. I mean, why would you think about probability? But uh, that there are actually more than one ways of, of looking at this, particularly as applies to healthcare. And, and it does seem to really make a difference to how you see your patients and see see the consultation. Uh-oh, two so, probability episodes in a row. Uh, 
Did, was the last one about probability? <laughs> oh, that was risk. Yes. Yes. It's a building. It's it's a building on a theme, Jenny. Stop stop giving us stealth stats, Tom. Um, so, I mean, yeah, again, I, I was thinking ab- about this after the interview with Riley about our jobs. A lot of it boils down to trying to kind of predict the future, isn't, isn't it? It's, you know, I've got this symptom, what's going to happen? What, what if I don't do anything? What if I take this medication? You know, what, and risk is, you know, an everyday part of, of, of life now, isn't it, with, with COVID as well? So um, I think it's very relevant to, to practice and everything. So, yeah, shall we have a listen and then we can... Uh, See, see if you've um, your interest has been piqued by it, and that's coming up after this offer for deep breath in listeners in the UK. As a GP, you want to ensure your practice is in line with the latest clinical guidance. That's why all NHS staff in England, Scotland, and Wales have free access to BMJ Best Practice. With extensive coverage of the most commonly occurring conditions, BMJ Best Practice helps you treat patients with confidence. Structured around the patient consultation, it includes differential diagnosis and treatment algorithms, videos of common clinical procedures, important update alerts for evidence changes, over 250 medical calculators, links to local guidelines, nearly 500 patient leaflets and an award-winning app for access anytime, anywhere. Create your free account today by visiting bmj.com slash ukaccess. Funded by Health Education England, NHS Education for Scotland and NHS Wales. Let's go back to the interview with Rani. Well, I think... uh we are talking a lot about probabilities and risk uh, in medicine and healthcare these days. So what is the probability of this treatment working for you? Uh, Or what's the risk of you getting diabetes, for instance? And there are at least two ways to understand those types of uh, concepts. And one is to say that, okay, so when we look at probabilities for you, then we are actually basing our probability estimate or our risk estimate on what happens on population level. So we have seen what happens to other people and we have counted how often, for instance, people with parents of diabetes, how often they get diabetes. And then we say, okay, this is the probability that you will get it, uh, given that your parents got it, for instance. And, And that would be what we call a frequentist uh, view on probability. So I was, um, after we spoke last last week, I was trying to explain this as you did to me, uh, to my seven-year-old. And I think it was okay with the tossing a coin. You just toss a coin a hundred times and see what yeah. happens. And that's, that's yeah, and, and we also know that, let's say you toss a coin a hundred times and it turns out 63 times it landed heads. And you're going to think, well, maybe that's not uh, an accurate number. Maybe <laughs> is it the biased coin or did I just not toss it many times, uh, as many times as I should? So you might think that if I tossed it more times, it would uh, the distribution would come towards 50-50 of heads and tails. So that's why we want as big a sample as possible when we... Uh, when we uh, generate probabilities 
in this way using statistics. It's a bit like saying that you know, fifty percent of people love this uh, uh, love this treatment, and you only gave it to two. And, it's and a this really is, bad this estimate. This is the basis for evidence-based medicine, essentially, isn't it? Is is let's let's look at what happened in in a, in a randomized controlled trial, and you know, we could then apply that to to your symptom of abdominal pain or you know, bloating. Um, yeah, and we know that the randomized controlled trial. So first of all, if it's very few people in the study. You also know that it's less reliable, for instance. And sometimes people say, well, we cannot only rely on one RCT. We need many, many, many. And and so you see, according to this view on probability, which is called frequentism, the more frequent, <laughs> the more data you got in, in the quantitative sense, the better your probability estimate will be. So that's fre- frequentism, um, and what's the frequentism? So we set that up for something else. What's the alternative, um, or another way of thinking about this that you said? So the alternative is to look at the properties of things. So, for instance, if you have the coin, and you wonder how likely or what's the probability of it's going to land heads or tails uh, if I toss it, you might actually study the coin itself, and you look at its. You know, you see it's two-sided. You have no reason to believe that it's heavier on one side than the other. You think that the surface it's going to land on is fairly flat and you have normal gravitation around you. And, uh, And if you flip it, yeah, you might then think, given all of these things and I know how things work, uh, it's a 50-50 chance. So that's why we think it's a fair way uh, to settle something, to flip a coin. And you might then think that, well, your probability of getting diabetes doesn't depend on facts about other people elsewhere. It depends on properties in you and how they develop. So for instance, what do you eat? Do you exercise? What kind of lifestyle, genetic, medical history do you have? Um, So, and also uh, what possibilities do you have to counteract a possible uh, process of change towards diabetes in you. So, so that would be a more qualitative approach. But then you also need to understand what kind of things affect uh, the diabetes or your health. So you have to understand a bit more about why would this contract, why would exercise, for instance, contract diabetes or why would diet uh, contract diabetes? So in, in that case, you wouldn't... Um, you wouldn't think that as many repetitions as possible of other people getting diabetes or not getting diabetes is the most relevant causal evidence. The most relevant causal evidence would lie in my expertise, if I was a GP, and you and your context, because that's where all the causal uh, work is happening. Okay, so I so I get these these two things, and one is about understanding the properties of the thing that you're trying to predict, or yeah. the thing that it, it might, may happen, and the other is about um, yeah the fre- frequentist approach. Um, and I guess like it, does one tend to trump the other, or are, are we in the last sort of fifty odd years of evidence based medicine has, or would you say that the the frequentist approach is sort of winning out? Uh, or, or are these two things sort of felt or, you know, in a similar regard? So 
I think that, so this, this view that you look at the properties, that's called the propensity view. And the propensity view is taking probabilities as being something intrinsic to you and the situation. And I think this evidence-based medicine turn that we saw in the early 90s was really switching <laughs> from the propensity view to a clear population-based frequentist approach. And, and in philosophy, we say that this is a move from um, a more... Um, intrinsic ontological theoretical approach about what is actually here and now and what, what is actually the case to a more empiricist approach, like what can we know based on what we can observe. So uh, evidence-based medicine is saying, okay, so how do you know that the coin is fair until you toss it many, many, many times? It might be biased, but you wouldn't know it. And And this comes from David Hume because David Hume, he said, okay, you cannot trust what you cannot see. So if there are intrinsic properties there, say that you have a predisposition for uh, being lactose intolerant, but you're a vegan, so we don't know. He would say, how could you know such a thing? There must be some kind of test that would make this observable. So either I have to wait until you drink some milk and you have a reaction, or there will have to be a test where I could, for instance, find that you have a biological predisposition. So it's all in what you can observe. And if you try to say something beyond what you can observe, you're speculating. And that type of speculation is what medicine wants to get rid of. So this is interesting. In the book, you talk about medically unexplained symptoms. Um, can you talk us through that? Yeah. So when we started this Cause Health project, um, I heard about these medically unexplained symptoms that they were very common and that 30 to 50 percent of all the complaints taking to uh, doctors that they were defined as unexplained and I didn't understand what it meant that they were unexplained and it turned out that it actually means that there is no statistical studies there are no clinical studies or RCTs where people experience uh, the same things and have the same uh, effect or the same symptoms. So it, it links back to one of the core themes in the book uh, where we generally assume in science that same cause should give same effect under the same or similar conditions. And in the clinic, we never seem to have the same conditions or any normal conditions or ideal conditions. So it's really hard to try to find these things that are common. But we do know that there are enough of these um, biomedical uh, illnesses where it's really easy to see that, okay, so here is one factor that everyone has to have in common in order to have this illness, for instance. And in these medically unexplained symptoms like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, uh, tension type headache, all of these things, there seems to be too much individual variation. And there seems to be uh, too much complexity in the causal story. And there seems to be even uniqueness. So some people might be diseased in their own ways. And you can see how from a statistical point of view, or from a clinical study point of view, where you're going to look at, given the same kind of cause can you observe the same kind of effect under the same kind of conditions that you're never going to get there so that's why we're saying that 
you need to understand more about, first of all, you need to have medical expertise. You have to understand how the body works and you have to understand what kind of things could influence the situation. So trying to kind of pick up on a couple of the things from there, it's a, a lot. It's like, um, I guess the, the, the topic is, is complicated, isn't it? And and takes a bit of time to, to settle in. But um, I, I found that that difference between the two types of, you know, probability or, or like trying to look at, look ahead at, at, at what might happen um, to be, to be very clear. And, and, and we do rely on this, um, this empiricist frequentist sort of view, isn't it? And, and, I think that can lead to to real effects in in practice. I mean, do 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 you, do you think that when we're listening back? Uh, I suppose what, in one way, it's well, I'm sorry, but you know, there isn't a randomized control trial on on somebody with your symptoms, so I can't really help. I think that's sometimes how it how it's left, and then I think this is offering us something a little bit more um, hopeful and helpful, probably to to the individual, which is well, try, can we try to work out? what's going on based on you and what's happened to you and, and how we've reached this point. I think that's my, my kind of take home f- from that. This isn't exactly what you were saying, Tom, but actually what this reminded me of was our last episode talking about prediabetes and how the numbers of people with air quotes prediabetes pre-diabetes who actually go on to develop the condition seem so low. Um, But actually, my experience in the Bronx was very different. And that actually, the number of people who went on to develop diabetes after being diagnosed with pre-diabetes was fairly common, fairly high in practice. And it really made me think like that was such a clear example of the difference between this frequentist approach to you know, what we know, again, in air quotes, what we know about um, the development of a condition based on what happens to other people who have been studied in these population level trials. But actually what you're dealing with in general practice is a person who comes with unique conditions, unique social determinants of health, unique genetic, you know, features. And, and, and our task is really to kind of figure out, you know, how well do your individual properties <laughs> taking a propensity view um match with <laughs> match with uh, what what EBM tells us from a frequentist view, you know, like like okay, we have this rough estimate of your likelihood for going on to develop diabetes using the example that's been used um but but how do, what does that actually mean for you? And that is where it just becomes really tricky. Um, and I think that's kind of um, where I think the challenge here is like if if we're moving away or, or if we're considering a view that is alternative to a frequentist EBM approach to looking at the intrinsic own conditions and properties of a patient, then you get into these, it's like next level estimating risk and probability. It just feels very um, circular. Navjoy, please save me. 
No, I, I can't. I can't save you. <laughs> all I wanted to say was, you'll be on save. No, all I wanted to say was um, that I don't think it does come into com- conflict with uh, sort of an evidence-based medicine view. I think the the kind of definition of evidence-based medicine that was put forward by Dave Sackett and all those kind of um, godfathers, I hope they're godmothers as well, of EBM, was uh, was that, you know, you're using the best available current evidence and combining that with clinical expertise and patient factors as well. And I, I don't I don't think that, that they contradict one another. I think we should, you know, that's part of it anyway. That's yeah. part of good practice of EBM. Yeah, uh, I think probably... Well, what I see, or my bias is that 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 seems to be often overvalued, and you know, and I think you can see that in in the plans for the future of general practice. Is well, we don't really need GPs; we can have other people to do the same job because essentially, what you're doing is applying guidelines to to, to patients, um, and and not giving that longitudinal, you know, continuity of care, and, uh, and not to and not trying to. Um, criticize or undermine the non-gp roles but i just feel like there's a there's a bit of like reductionism about what what it is we're doing uh but i i think the second part of it for me is is yeah the challenge for for this is i'm not sure i can ever really <laughs> uh have that in-depth or knowledge and understanding of of every every health condition and symptom that that maybe is required to, to, to be the expert to, to really nail this, I suppose. Uh, uh, maybe you don't need that. Maybe that's out there. And part of what we need to be better at is say, okay, well, I've got the symptoms from you. That, you know, that, that's that's me reconvene in a couple of weeks and I'm going to set aside some time to, to look into this so that when we meet again, I'm I'm better informed about this symptom and your, your sort of story or possible conditions. Yeah, or just I guess keeping an open mind, like just to use Jenny's example of of the pre diabetes as well. I guess is you know you wouldn't just because the population level data might suggest something. I guess you trying to keep an open mind to the fact that your patient in front of you is experiencing something different, which I think we've all we've all experienced and we're all kind of aware aware of that happening in practice. I, what I find difficult is doing this at scale for you know the many many patients that we see and in the little time that we have um to see them but i i mean i i, I guess what we're talking about is individualizing care to some extent which we, sh- we should be doing i suppose but is is very hard to do in combination with trying to do best sort of evidence-based practice and in the setting of you know um resource constraints as well like you know everything's so so constrained right now i was just gonna add that you know thinking about care on a more individual level as opposed to kind of population level guidelines does also offer an opportunity to invite patients into joint decision making um i think a little bit more, right? Like that opportunity to consider their own conditions Mm. um, as opposed to just saying, well, you fit into this category, this algorithm, this guideline, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, Which actually leads me to think about kind of my last point around the action plan, which is perhaps in contrast to what we see in New Zealand and the U.S. where there are increasingly calls for 
um, broader physician diversity amongst our trainees, I also found that kind of lacking in the action plan. Like, no, there's nothing about kind of making sure that there's kind of broad population level representation amongst the trainees coming up. And I wondered, um, you know, if that could have some consequences, knowing that, you know, we are at at its core, like making relationships with people. Mm, good point. Good point. Um, <laughs> and I suppose to finish on, perhaps, um, because we heard the action plan from the RCGP, but um, Cause Health have a bit of an action plan as well at the end of their book, um, which we, I say we haven't done justice to at all. So, so do go and have a look at it if you're interested. Um, but should I give you some of their action points and we can compare and contrast like a, you can write an essay about it, perhaps. Uh, uh, so here, here we go. Uh, so assume medical uniqueness because there is no normal, standard or statistically average patient. You can sort of do a clapometer or give me a thumbs up or down mm-hmm. as we go along. Uh, uh, treatment should be adapted rather than standardised because no two patients are causally equal. Um, I won't go to all of these. There are more than five. So they've they've outdone the RCGP <laughs> with the number of recommendations. Uh, accept clinical uncertainty because precise quantitative estimates do not reflect reality. Which again, looks back to our previous episode. Um, and know your patients because the most causally relevant evidence will come from there. And then we heard in the in the interview there, listen to the story because medically unexplained does not equal no causal explanation. Um, yeah, and they say that's about half of them, but uh, I think those all kind of chime with me. Um, I need to read read more and digest the book a bit more to see what about the kind of basis for that but um those those seem to be very much aligned with with general practice don't they and what what i think our our role being definitely that sort of blend of the science and art of medicine i think there's yeah there's room for both approaches and we sort of need both approaches i think and we also need six thousand more gps (laughs) yeah and uh, (laughs) we need all sorts of things <laughs> well, we need yeah. we need those things now. I will say as well, not not in twenty twenty four. Yeah, so we haven't quite fixed everything, but uh, it's I been mean, interesting to think. Have about. we fixed anything? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> have we raised more questions? We've we've ruminated and uh, reflected. Yeah, that's good. Reflections. I good. think it's a valid critique. So let's leave it there then. Um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Uh, thanks to Rani for that interview. Um, and as I say, go onto the Cause Health or Google Cause Health to find out more. And uh, thank you, Navjoy. See you next time. Thank you. See you next time. And Jenny, see you again. Thank you. See you next time. If you're enjoying Deep Breath In, please go onto your podcast app and leave us a review. You can also email us practice at bmj.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Bye for now.